if you were not here last week, uh, this is we are in the second week of a series that's going to take us throughout the fall and all the way into the Advent season, which begins the last week in November, studying the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Nehemiah, you're welcome to. If not, it, will, it is printed for you in your worship folder or it will be on the screen behind me. But this morning, we're going to come to Nehemiah chapter 2 and we're going to pick up the story that we began last week. In Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you would find the scripture so you can read along with me, again, either in your worship folder or you can just look at the screen behind me, or if you have a Bible, you know, one of those, the archaic idea that you would have a Bible in church, you know, whatever that is, um, you can read there as well. But let's read together from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 11 through 18. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, Why are you, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone and when, you, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was that that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hand for the good work. This is God's word. Um, Nehemiah, it's interesting, if you see in your outline the intro to this, Nehemiah is very appropriately named. His name means our God comforts, or as the children's Bible I'm reading to my kid, kids put it, God wipes away our tears. That's his name. Now, it's very fitting that that would be his name because of the storyline of this book. Nehemiah is a Jew. He's one of God's people, 
but he's in exile in Susa, the capital of Persia. 140 years before this story of Nehemiah begins, Jerusalem, the capital city of the land of Israel, was destroyed by the Babylonians, and all of the Jews were carried away into a foreign slavery. 140 years later, the city of Jerusalem still lay in ruins. It's defenseless because the walls have been broken down and destroyed. And there's brokenness and pain, shame and suffering. And it's through Nehemiah that God is going to come and comfort his people. Through him, God will wipe away tears. So he's, he's very appropriately named. But the story of Nehemiah in Jerusalem is part of a much larger story that is unfolding in the Bible. And the story goes like this. Our world has gone terribly wrong, but in Jesus, God has come to make it right again. He's taking what is broken and making it whole. No matter what sin and sadness we might come across in our city or in our lives, the very end of the Bible, in the last scene, it puts it this way. God is coming to make his dwelling with us and will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, no more pain. In Jesus, everything sad is going to come untrue, to use the famous line from, from the end of The Lord of the Rings. In Jesus, everything sad is going to come untrue. And so if you're not a Christian, or if church is, is a new idea to you, the gospel, I want to say this, the gospel, what we mean, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just good news about what happens after you die. No, it's also good news about what God is doing right now to save us and to heal our brokenness and to turn the city of Winter Haven into his city. But the question we have to wrestle with, and we will wrestle with as we come to this book for the next few weeks, is how does he go about doing that? And the consistent answer in the scriptures, all the way back, very beginning, all the way through, is that he begins with his people, he begins with the church. And all the way back in the story of Abraham, which we've been reading in community Bible reading, he takes a, a man or a family or a people and he chooses to bring his salvation and his blessing and his healing to the world by first putting it on a people, and then sending those people out into the world to live there on purpose. And so God says to Abraham and to Isaac this week, he says, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so we've entitled this sermon series, City Within a City, because Nehemiah is going to teach us what it means for us to be God's chosen people, his instruments of healing and restoration in Winter Haven and the world. That just as Nehemiah is being sent to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and restore spiritual vitality among God's people, so we are being sent into our city to attack sin and brokenness. And last week we saw that part of what it means to live as a city within a city is to live with a broken heart over the sin and the despair that so many experience in our city. But this morning, as we come to this passage that we read, we want to see what it means for us to begin to live vocationally. What does it mean for us to be a people who have a vocation, who live vocationally? And so here's what we need to do. Three things. We need to, we need to ask the question, living vocationally, what is it? What do we mean by that? Let's define it. Secondly, what does it require? And then thirdly, where does the motivation to live that way come from? So living vocationally. First, what is it? Secondly, what does it require? And thirdly, where does the motivation come from? Let's start right there. First, what does it mean to live vocationally? The last phrase in chapter 1, if you do happen to have a Bible, you'll see it sets the stage for what happens in chapter 2. And at the very end of chapter 1 comes this little phrase, I was cupbearer to the king. 
And as chapter 2 opens, we see that Nehemiah has this position called cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Now, what we need to understand is it doesn't mean that Nehemiah is some glorified busboy. We know from history that in Persian royal courts, the cupbearer was a trusted official because the king's life was literally in his hands. There was this obsession with assassination attempts, and so the, 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 the king wouldn't drink a cup until somebody had first drank it in case somebody had poisoned the cup, so obviously the king wouldn't die. Who would? Nehemiah would. And so because of that dynamic, because that, that official was so trusted with the king, it rose in prominence to where by the time we read of Nehemiah here, the cupbearer was something like the chief of staff or the second in command. It was a very prominent position in the leadership and in the courts of Persian culture. Now think about that for a minute. Nehemiah, a Jew, second in command in Persia. What an incredible providence. What an incredible providence that Nehemiah would occupy that position at this time that God's city, Jerusalem, lay in ruins, but God has an inside man that was strategically placed in just the right spot to do something about it. You can't help but see that God has strategically, sovereignly orchestrated the events of Nehemiah's life to strategically place him in this position for this moment in history to bring about his purposes. And that's what we mean when we talk about living vocationally. It means, and here's a definition, it means to see God's sovereignty at work in your life and to live in response to his sovereignty for the sake of his purposes. Living vocationally means to see God's sovereignty at work in your life and to live in response to his sovereignty for the sake of his purposes. Now, I want to give you a picture of what I think this looks like before I kind of do the explanation part. Um, Brendan Manning, in his book, Ruthless Trust, tells the story of a, of a monk in a monastery who was surrounded by men and, and monks who were much more gifted than he was in singing and doing all these beautiful pieces of art. And this guy really didn't have much to bring to the table. And he became very discouraged because he was not nearly as talented in all the things that really mattered as his brothers were. And then it dawned on him, before he became a monk, he was a tumbler in the circus. And so, during the worship service that would take place in, in the abbot, this young monk decided, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of going in there, nobody will really even notice I'm gone. I'm going to go down into the crypt of the monastery, and there's a statue of Jesus there, and I'm going to do my tumbling act before the statue of Jesus. And so every day, while the, while the worship services were going on, and all of the guys who were really talented were engaging in all of the things that, that they were good at, this monk would go down and he would do joyfully do his tumbling act in front of the statue of Jesus in the bottom of the monastery. And pretty soon, the head guy found out about it and they went down to investigate because this was a big no-no. And when they went down into the crypt of the monastery to see what this monk was doing when he finished doing his tumbling act, um, the, the statue of Jesus, again, this is, you know, the statue of Jesus came to life and, and came down and shook the monk's head and said, thank you. And the abbot said, you know what, there's more worship going on down here than there is up there. You see, that's what I think. That's just a little picture of what I think it means when we say it means to see God's sovereignty at work in your life. You know, hey, I was a tumbler in the circus. We have a church planter in our, in our denomination in this part in, in, in you know, southwest Florida that was a juggler in the circus. You know, I was a tumbler in the circus. Maybe God, that's who God made me to be, and so I'm going to live in response to his sovereignty 
for the sake of his purposes. And here's what we mean. Wherever you live and work and play, God has strategically put you in those places. Whoever you are, whatever your temperament and personality may be, God has strategically made you, you. Whoever you're around, whatever friends and neighbors and co-workers, God has strategically put them in your life. And therefore, whatever you do should be done for him and not for yourself. Whether you're a mom or a student or a business owner or a professional athlete, your work, whatever that is, should serve the larger purpose of what God is doing in the world because you've been called there to serve them. Who you are, where you are. What you're doing, all of that is the product of our sovereign will that created each one of us and is working in the circumstances of our lives to bring about his purposes in our city, in our world. And to live vocationally is to understand that and to, and to live in response to that. Martin Luther used to say that God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. Men, are you with me? I sure hope he does. Now, what does he mean by that? He means there's beauty in recognizing what God is doing in your life and responding joyfully to that. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're new to church and you're here this morning, this is something that is, I just need to tell you, this is something that is missing from the dominant worldview of our culture. Oz Guinness, who's a popular Christian writer, is really insightful about this. And he writes, he says there are two different schools in our culture when it comes to an understanding of our identity and our purpose. On one side, there are those who believe, and this is the phrase he uses, he says, there are those in our culture who believe that we are, we are constituted to be, that from birth we carry the script of our life story, that everything is fated and there's no use fighting, and it's just all karma or fate or destiny. And I, I was telling Jonathan about this, he said, yeah, like Luke Skywalker, right? Luke, I am your father. I mean... I, I, there's no getting away from it. I'm just, I'm constrained to be. Who I am and my life story has been scripted from the very beginning and there's no use fighting. I might as well just embrace, embrace what that is. But then see, there's this other side of those of us who, who believe that we must have the courage to be. So there's the constrained to be and then there's the courage to be. In other words, that we must have the courage and the determination to make ourselves what we want to be. That if you don't like your husband, you can trade him in for another one. If you don't like your body, you can change it. If you don't like your job, go back to school and go do something else. But we have to have the courage to make ourselves what we want to be, that we can become whatever it is we want to be. If we just put in enough work and enough, and enough you know, we, and we do the right things, and then we can, we can, we can self-construct. We can, there's this idea of self-construction. We can make ourselves exactly what we want to be. But I want to tell you, neither of those is true. Our sense of identity and purpose doesn't come from our being constituted to be, nor does it come from having the courage to be. It comes from being called to be. And a deep sense of identity and purpose can only be found in relationship with the living God who's created us uniquely and has a specific plan for each of us. You see, Christians believe God is in heaven on his throne, directing our steps, orchestrating the circumstances of our lives, fulfilling his purpose, and that there's a story capital S, unfolding all around us that we can participate in, and we can only understand our small stories as they are unfolding within the larger story of God's purpose, and only when we take our circumstances and bring them up into the larger story of what God is doing and the role he intends us to play can we live with the meaning and the vitality we all long for. And so Oz Guinness, who I mentioned just a minute ago, puts it this way. He says, God has created 
God has created us in our gifts for a place of his choosing. And we will only be ourselves when we are finally there. Isn't that a great sentence? I just that just really struck me this week. God has created us and our gifts for a place of his choosing. And we will only be ourselves when we are finally there. See, to live, to have a vocation is to live on purpose. It means we're not self-defined, but we're called by God. We're called to live for God and not for ourselves. And really, I think if I could help you, there are two two main things in that. We see them in this passage. Two, two parts of what I mean when I talk about living vocationally. And the first is just this, that you have to own. You have to own the people and the place that God has called you to. And you see that in the way Nehemiah approaches Artaxerxes. It's been four months since Nehemiah has heard of the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet he is still so overwhelmed by sadness that he can't hide it from his face, which was what his job was. The king says you're sad, and he's very surprised that Nehemiah is sad in his presence. That's because it was a big no-no. He could have killed Nehemiah for this. And yet Nehemiah could not overcome the sadness that gripped his heart because his city, the city he loved, lay in ruins. And so he came before the king knowing it could cost him his job or even cost him his life, and yet he could not get over the grief and the sadness. It was all over his face. And he says he's very much afraid because he realizes it's something that could have gotten him in a lot of trouble. And then I think if you look in verse 3, you'll see even more why this is so pronounced. It's, it's very pronounced in the way he describes Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 3, Nehemiah says, when, when the king asks him, why are you sad? Nehemiah says, why should I not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruins? And then again in verse 5, he calls Jerusalem the city of my father's graves. And I, I think I get that. I think I get what Nehemiah is saying there. My, my, my mom passed away in 1999, and she's buried in, in Winter Haven. You know, I have grand, not grandparents. Um, that are, my, my grandfather passed away not long ago and is buried in Lakeland. But, but I have great grandparents and I have family and I have I, all this is Winter Haven is the city of my family's graves. There's a history here. Nehemiah is saying there's there's centuries of history that my family has with that city. And because of that, that is that is my city. That is the place of my father's graves. It's the place where my family died and it's the place where I want to die too. And he puts he puts ownership on the city of Jerusalem and says, that, how could I not be sad when the city, when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? You, do you see that? This is my city. This is my church. You know, this sounds really weird, but it's still, these are my kids. I mean, they were rolling around on the floor last night, you know, on top of one another. Nationally, I had to look at one another. There are four kids there. What? Those are our kids. These are my kids. This is my church. This is my city. And there's an ownership that has to take place. And then what happens is once you've owned the people or the place God's called, excuse me, God's called you to, there has to be an aligning of your life purpose with God's purpose. You see what Nehemiah does? Nehemiah, though he's, his job is to be cupbearer to the king, he discovers a calling that extends beyond that job. His job was to bring the king wine, but his calling was to align his life with God's purposes for Jerusalem in particular but for God's purposes in all the world. And so he trades in his job for a vocation. He takes his job and he makes it a subset of his calling. He says this wine bearer thing's just a job, but there's a calling. And so how do I make being a wine bearer fit into what God has, the greater thing of what God has called me to do and to be in the world for the sake of his purposes in response to his sovereignty? 
And that is something that in every area of our lives it has to filter out. I'm called, I'm a father, but, you know, I have no choice. They're there. They're rolling around on the floor killing one another, right? I mean, they're right there. But you see, being a father is not just a job. It's not just that I raise them to be well-paid, well-educated professionals when they grow up. No, it's a calling. I have to to align my purpose as a father with God's purposes in the world so that I'm not just producing good citizens. I'm producing faithful, productive participants in Jesus' mission in the world. See how it changes things? It changes being a cupbearer for Nehemiah. It changes being a father for me. It change, where, who, no matter what your job is, it changes the way we approach those things. But you see, here's what happens. is Immediately, when we begin to talk about this, you're going to see that that, that piece of aligning our life purpose with God's comes at great personal cost to those who dare to do it. And so we have to not only define what we mean by living vocationally, but what does it require of us? What is the cost of living this way? And we see what I'm talking about and what Nehemiah does here. If you'll look there in your passage, you'll see uh, in verses 7 and 8, this scene happens four months after Nehemiah uh, has heard about Jerusalem. And and in that four-month period of time, he's been praying and thinking and dreaming. And we see in verses 7 and 8 that he has formed a plan. He spent four months planning in reflection and prayer, and it's going to take him 52 days to execute the plan. But he says, I'm going to need this from Asaph, and I'm going to need, I'm going to need letters that, so that I can have safe passage, and I'm going to need wood so that I can build the gates in my house. And do you see how he's begun to put the pieces together, and he spent a lot of time reflecting. Four months. But not only that, but when he goes to Jerusalem, drop down to verse 11, what's the first thing he does? He, get, he gets to Jerusalem and he waits three days, we're told, to kind of recuperate from the travel. And then the first thing he does is he goes out and he, expect, and he inspects the city. He goes out at night and he looks at the walls. He doesn't want to take somebody else's word for it. He wants to see for himself. He inspects. He wants to know how bad things really are. And you see, to look, to do that, to look at how bad things really are and to call it as bad as it actually is, that's the first part of the work that we have to do. This is a simple sentence, but it really, I think it really, I had to wrap my head around just the simplicity of this. You can't know what your work is until you diagnose your problem. You hear that? You can't know what the work is until you diagnose the problem. And in order to diagnose the problem, you've got to begin to look. If you're a mom, okay, you've got to prayerfully consider and inspect your children. You've got to watch their heart attitudes and their motivations. You've got to watch carefully and observe and reflect and talk together as parents and pray. If you're a teacher, right? If you're a teacher, you have to grade papers. You have to observe. You have to consult with other teachers. You have to try to move in to that student's world and understand them. That's what David and Aubrey committed to doing just a few minutes ago when they vowed that they would be students, not only of the word, but of you, that they would inspect your lives because that's what loving one another requires. It requires that we inspect one another, that we get close enough to one another, that we really get entangled in one another's lives and we begin to really be able to look upon each other's lives. And so if we're going to love Winter Haven, we're going to have, a, we're going to, have to drive the streets of the city, we're going to have to walk neighborhoods, we're going to have to talk to city leaders and people on the streets, we're going to have to look and to pay attention and to ask questions and to pray and to reflect and to strategize together. And if you think, about what it means for you to live vocationally, you have to begin with the idea of inspection and reflection. Louis Agassiz, a celebrated biologist and 
biologist and professor at Harvard returned from summer vacation one year and told his students that he had spent the summer traveling and made it halfway across his backyard. Isn't that a great picture? You see, that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of attention. That's the kind of looking. And what's happening here is Nehemiah is filling his mind and filling his heart with Jerusalem. And it sounds silly to say it this way, but Nehemiah couldn't do the work God called him to do without leaving Susa and going to Jerusalem. He couldn't stay at a distance. He had to, he had to jump in. He had to get his fingers dirty in the soil of Jerusalem. And the word the church has historically used to refer to what we're talking about here is the word incarnation. Literally, it means in the flesh. It refers to putting ourselves in another's shoes and trying to see things from their perspective. And, and I, I want to just I want to warn us that this move of incarnation comes at great personal cost. Just think about Nehemiah with me for a minute. He's the right-hand man to the most powerful man in the world. What perks do you think came with that job? How big do you think his house was? How nice do you think people were to him? How good do you think the food was? But somehow, the cost of loving Jerusalem, he's going to leave all of that because of the revelation of God's heart that's come to him He's incarnating. Because of love, Nehemiah is going to pass up a cushy job for a very hard assignment. He's trading in comfort and security for danger and being hated and sleepless nights. And it's an act of incredible sacrifice. And in that way, he's the picture of the incarnation. Nehemiah points to Jesus who left the throne room of heaven to come to earth in an ultimate act of sacrifice. But B.B. Warfield, a theologian in the late 19th century, says all that I'm trying to say better than I ever could. So instead of trying to do it on my own, I'm just going to quote B.B. Warfield. And it's, gonna, it's long, so it's going to be behind you. B.B. Warfield talks about Jesus, and then in talking about Jesus, our own call to the self-sacrifice of love and incarnation, he says, he, Jesus, did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all upon the altar of compassion. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of people. Wherever people suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever people strive, there we will be to help. Wherever people fall, fail, there we will be to uplift. And wherever people succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption into them. It means forgetfulness of ourselves and others. It means entering into every person's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. It means that all the experience of men shall smite our souls and shall beat and batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. That's what we're called to. Now let me just ask the women. Women, what would it feel like for your husband to not brood morbidly over his own needs, but led by love to forget himself in your needs? What would that feel like? You see, that's the kind of love and self-sacrifice we're called to, to radically align our lives with Jesus and his life purpose. It requires that we live with the same kind of self-sacrifice, forgetting ourselves in love to the people and the places he's called us. 
Now let me ask you, can you sense the danger in living that way? It's dangerous. I mean, if I live like that, who's going to take care of me? And we've been disciplined in our culture in a way of living that is kind of the complete opposite of what we see here in Nehemiah. We're self-absorbed, not self-forgetful. Or let me ask you this, I'm, I, I, and this is what is true of my, of my parenting and of this thing we're called to. I'm, I'm so quickly overwhelmed by the need in our city. I'm afraid of discovering how bad things really are because how do you keep from getting discouraged and overwhelmed? And I struggle that in parenting my four kids. Where do you go when you come face to face with how really bad things are and the enormity of what it takes to fix us and all you can do is cry, help, I need reinforcement. And the key phrase that popped up twice in this passage as we come to the third point of where do you find, where do you find the courage, where do you find the motivation to live this way? There's a key phrase that pops up twice in this passage. Verse 8, if you look in verse 8, God recognizes, or Nehemiah recognizes God's blessing and what he's doing. He says, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. There's no other explanation. The king, the king had to reverse a previous edict, edict that he had made about Jerusalem a few years before, the king had said, may, may the walls never be rebuilt. And Nehemiah is going in to ask that he reverse what he's already said would be the case. And he knows it's a miracle that the king was willing to reverse what he had already, what he had already decreed. And he says, the only explanation is that God's good hand was upon me. And then if you skip down to verse 18, he repeats the thought in verse 18. He says, I told the Jews of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. God's hand. Nehemiah says, was upon me for good. Now, God's hand is a symbol of his power. And that's exactly what we need. We need God's hand of power to be upon our lives. We need his good hand to be upon us as we move out into our city. It's what I need as a dad. I need God's good hand upon me in my parenting. It's what I need as a pastor. I need God's good hand upon me to make up for my youth and my lack of wisdom and my stupidity. But here's what we can do if we're not careful. And here's what I want to guard you against. We can say, okay, so go be like Nehemiah and God will bless you. Okay, go, get, get busy. If you do what Nehemiah did, then God's good hand will be upon you. And I want to say, no, 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 that's wrong. That's religion. Religion is the belief that if I do the right things or say the right things, then I can earn God's approval. If I follow the rules and do exactly what I'm supposed to, then his hand will be upon my life. But Nehemiah says, look there, he says it was God's good hand. That's another word for that. It's his gracious hand that had done these things. Nehemiah doesn't claim that his obedience has won God's favor. He says it was grace. I have no claim on it. Nehemiah says, I just happened to step into the flow of what God is already doing, that he has a mission, and I kind of aligned myself with that, and, and God just poured out his blessing upon, my, uh, upon me because it was his good pleasure to do so. You see, that's the point. Nehemiah is the picture of the one who would come centuries later to finally rescue his people. Jesus, like Nehemiah, Jesus left his place at the Father's side in heaven to come to earth. He left the sound of angels' praise to be ridiculed and mocked and spit upon. He traded in a throne for a manger. He traded glory and power for weakness and frailty. He was rich and he became poor in order to save us. He came to walk in our shoes. The scriptures say he came to share our weakness, which is almost too incredible to even imagine. And like Nehemiah, Jesus radically aligned his life purpose with his father's, trusting him completely, and was obedient to his own death. See, he's the one who will ultimately come and who will accomplish what Nehemiah begins here. He's the one who, at the end of time, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's the true Nehemiah, and here's what it cost him to do that. To love us, Jesus had to die. 
Jesus came and walked the earth to inspect the damage sin had done. He came to grade us, and it was so bad. The verdict was so bad, and our lives were in, are in such ruin that the only way he could repair us was to offer himself in our place, and that's what he did in the cross. And that's what the cross does. The cross grades us. You see, we, because of our sin, deserve nothing but God's wrath. But Jesus, and in Jesus, we find grace. Nehemiah says, God's gracious hand was upon me. And if your faith is in Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, then God's gracious hand is extended to you as well, but not because you're somehow worthy. No, it's the exact opposite. Because God's hand of wrath was raised against Jesus' son, now his hand can be raised to you to bless you. And because the blow of God's hand came down hard upon Jesus, it's now extended to us, not to strike us too, but to do us good. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon I read this week, he says, The Lord Jesus cannot curse me, for he has borne my curse. He cannot be unkind to me, for he has shared my sorrows. If every pang that rends my heart has also rent his heart, and if into all my woes he has descended even deeper than I have gone, it must mean love to me. It cannot mean anything else. Isn't that great? Because Jesus faced the Father's wrath. It can only mean love for those who have faith in him. It can mean nothing else. And in Jesus, God's good hand is upon us. If your faith is in Christ, then God's good hand is upon you as you go out to do the work he has given you to do. Jesus' work on our behalf must mean love for us. It cannot mean anything else, and that changes everything. For one, it helps us rest. It reminds us that this is Jesus' work we've been called to, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a faculty member at Winter Haven High School or whatever it is that God has given to you to do. It is his work, and his hand will accomplish it. And I've said often, and this sounds like a cop-out, and I don't mean it to be, but my, my, my number one goal in parenting my kids is to just get out of the way of his working. And if the favor of God rests upon me because of Jesus' work on my behalf, then I don't have to do something great. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to be the pastor of, of, a, of a church that has a thousand people coming. I don't have to make a lot of money. I don't have to be really important. I can just be a servant. I don't have to be successful. I can just be faithful. I don't have to produce. It helps us rest. But then again, it also helps us give, gives us courage, doesn't it? Nothing, in other words, nothing we will encounter in our work is greater than he is. I mean, nothing. Nothing you and I are going to come across is greater than this one. And if God is for us, finish it, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And in the gospel of Jesus, we're assured that he is indeed for us. And that eats away at the cynicism and the discouragement we're so prone to. And so we find here the courage to lose ourselves in others, to forget ourselves in the needs of others, to seek first his kingdom. And so the gospel of Jesus is the very thing that gives us the courage, the perseverance, the patience, the motivation, to, like Nehemiah, leave places of power and authority and wealth to go to places where we're vulnerable, to lose ourselves for the sake of loving others, which is the very thing he's called us to as we parent, as we befriend, and as we love our city. So let's pray that he would come and continue to do that work in us. Pray with me this morning. Jesus, thank you that in you we have everything we need. Thank you that, that in you we can be assured that the Father is indeed, um, his good hand of blessing is on us. 
that in you and because of your work, we no longer need to wonder whether or not the Father is pleased with us because when he looks upon us, he only sees your obedience. And therefore, we can be confident as we leave today that your good hand is upon us for good. May that encourage us. May it embolden us. May it strengthen us as we go to live towards the people and the places you have called us to. May we, um, may we faithfully align our life purpose with yours. And may, uh, may, it, may it do much to bring glory to your name and do much to bring good to the people you've called us to care for. Amen. Now here is his promise. Nothing compares to his promises. Here is the promise. When Jesus radically aligned his life with the Father's purposes, he died for it. So that now, as you radically align your life with God's purposes, if your faith is in Him, God's good hand is upon you. Because it came down hard upon Him, it is now extended to you to bless you. And that's exactly what we do in, in this benediction. We, I extend my hands to you to bless you as a sign that as you go, the Father goes with you to bless you. So receive this benediction this morning. His hand extended to you to bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.